and welcome at, to another heart-stopping, thrilling class in the bunker. Uh, and we're recording this on a very snowy uh, weekend and hope that everybody is staying warm and staying safe. Uh, and what a, what a better, there isn't a better time for you to have like class in the bunker than when you're kind of staying indoors from the cold. And so I'm glad you've joined us. Glad you're here with us. And uh, hopefully you'll, you'll enjoy kind of things that we're looking at. Now, got I uh, want to do something just a little bit different this week and uh, next week. There is certainly the, the... I started looking at this topic and realizing that there was so much more uh, to talk about than I could fit into a single uh, class period. So th that's that completely smacks of a two-parter. I know that's thrilling. Uh, and so you can... We can tease next week's so along with this week's, and you'll just hang in there like the like waiting for the next Avenger movie. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, so today we're going to talk about uh, the God of Vengeance, uh, and today I want to particularly focus on uh, the God of Vengeance as found in the Old Testament, and and particularly what we're going to be doing is walking through how we got the Hebrew Bible and where we think some of the God of Vengeance was perhaps inserted uh, into Holy Writ uh, that, may, that may have uh, led us a little bit astray. And then next week we're going to talk uh, about that uh, God of Vengeance uh, after the time of Christ and into the Middle Ages uh, and where there were other places that we think Concepts like uh, the atonement and sin uh, were twisted into a vengeance kind of framework uh, because all of that uh, it needs to be addressed and I'm glad that we're going to have uh, a couple of sessions uh, in which to do that. Now, why would we do this? Well, not long ago we talked about uh, people that would say, uh, why did you leave Christianity? And they said, well, I read the Bible. Uh, there were thing, troubling things that they started finding in the Bible. And some of it you can't necessarily argue that that God of the Old Testament seems to be a little preoccupied uh, with blood. Uh, we, have, we have things like um, uh, the flood, where uh, people seem to be dying all over the place. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, we're, we're talking about Abraham. And in Abraham's lifetime, he has to deal with the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and how this uh, merciful God of heaven chose to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and along with that, with that we're going to get, for instance, remember the, the instance of the, the creation of the golden calf and he's going to say, who's on the Lord's side who? And the sons of Levi step up and then thousands of others are slaughtered uh, because they didn't so step up. And again, it just does not seem to be this God of love that uh, we, we love and adore from the New Testament. This guy seems to be bent on wiping people out. Uh, so before they can even get out of uh, Egypt, remember he's going to kill all the firstborn animals and Egyptian children. And Again, I think we have this tendency sometimes to say, well, it's God and he chose to do that. And we're not necessarily thinking all the way through that says, this is a heavenly father, a loving parent, and he's slaughtering the firstborn of kids that had nothing to do with, with any of that. 
then they get into the into uh, Canaan, and they're told that they have to kill every man, woman, child, and animal in some of these Canaanite cities. Which again, here's another atrocity, and this sounds horrible. And then in the middle of that, then later on, they will they go out to attack Canaanite cities. So apparently, the Canaanite cities didn't go away. So what's going on, especially between First Kings and First Chronicles? What is it that we're not seeing here? Um, and then the the whole law of Moses itself. Uh, if we had gone into the Temple Mount, like on Passover or uh, Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement, it wouldn't look like a sacred temple setting. It would look like a butcher shop, and it would look where there's bloodletting all over the place, and the priests weren't so much quiet preaching priests as much as they were uh, meat butchers and they were all because they were doing more in terms of slaughtering animals than they were teaching uh, sacred principles. Uh, we also get um, the possibility that uh, you, if you were caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath your penalty might be death. That might be a death sentence for you. And uh, or we're going to go to the fact that uh, there were the lads that were teasing Elisha, and their penalty was death. We just can't. And, and then we get uh, the destruction of Jerusalem a couple of times um, because of their iniquities. Now, so much of this was involved in seeing God, talking about God as a God of vengeance, uh, the Lord of hosts, meaning he, he was the Lord of armies, and that the, the armies of Israel, uh, both on the ground, on both sides of the veil, what would they do? Would they, they would uh, subdue their enemies uh, with a terrible swift sword and... And so they, they needed to fear this God, who we know is a loving Heavenly Father. That does not match, does it? So much was this ingrained, though, into the, the, the Israelite psyche that after they come back from Babylonian exile, we'll talk more about the exile in just a minute, but after they come back from eg exile, the prophet Ezra, uh, is going to record that they come back onto the Temple Mount. Of course, there's nothing left. It's been leveled, and they're going to have to slowly build this temple of Zerubbabel. Um, and he's going to come back from the Babylonian exile, and he's going to say, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for, and for our great trespass, Seeing that thou that thou our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve, <laughs> you know, we there has been heavenly uh, justice reaped upon us, and we didn't even get as much as we should have. Uh, again, keeping in mind the abomination of desolation, the destruction of the temple site, and the leveling of that, and all of the kings that were killed and the priests and princesses that were hauled off to Babylon and that uh, the Babylonians Nebuchadnezzar did everything possible to destroy and stamp out uh, the, the uh, Israelite and Hebrew 
race and culture to a certain extent. It's horrible in terms of that. And Ezra's coming back and saying, that was really bad, but we didn't get what we deserved, really. We should have got more. It should have been worse than that, more better. Um, and we're grateful that you didn't do it. Uh, and so we're grateful that you've given this our deliverance after 70 years in Babylonian exile. There was that sense that we should be punished richly and deeply to the extent of our sins. Now, so again, you can see why it is that when people have tried to conceptualize God and they've decided to become an atheist instead, the contradiction should jump out. And, and it's basically this. How does a God who knows the fall of the sparrow continue to exercise angry retribution again and again and again and the bloodletting and the uh, and you know vengeance is mine I will repay sternly and swiftly and yet we are supposed to put that God in the same person as the one who healed the blind and, and healed the lepers and invited the sinners and adulterers and the tax collectors to come dine with him in his house. When some of those, by rights, by his own, his own law of Moses, they should have been stoned. And he's inviting them to dinner. How, how do we jive all of that? Well, I love one of the, the great uh, uh, biblical scholars, Peter Inns, uh, put it this way. He says, uh, the Bible is what it looks like when he, when he lets his children tell the story. His children are the ones telling this story. And they're the ones that are framing it where it is. Now, before we push back a little bit on this God of vengeance, will you permit me a, a little bit of a uh, biblical history? Where did we get, especially the Old Testament from? H how do we get that? Um, as, as scholar uh, uh, Margaret Barker says, who wrote the Bible? And do we know what uh, that ancient Israelites religion really was? who wrote the Bible will tell you who framed the religion going forward into the time of Jesus because it, it had been significantly written and the religion of Israel uh, altered a lot by the time that Jesus uh, is born. So who wrote the Bible? Okay, History, history 101 for just a couple of minutes. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, at the time of King Josiah, uh, this is about 640 uh, B.C., he's a, he's a, uh, a teen, and he's going to come into to power after his dad dies, uh, and, and it becomes very aware that um, they have not been following the law of Moses nor uh, keeping the, the laws and commandments very much. It's been pretty helter-skelter after Israel the ten tribes left and they go to the northern kingdoms and it's mainly just uh, uh, Judah and Benjamin 
uh, and some of the other tribes mixed down there, they're, they're not real observant. They've kind of gone inactive uh, on us. Um, and so really all that they have at this point, we just don't know completely what they had, was a collection, a loose collection of some scrolls and, and uh, some records of some type uh, loose oral traditions, but nothing that you could really put your hands on, and certainly no single document that you could say this is uh, Jewish history. Uh, this is even before probably the brass plates of Nephi or of Lehi were framed, because uh, at that point none of that has really kind of been compiled and committed. Then uh, you, you recall that in Second Kings, uh, the high priest. Uh, says to the secretary as he's looking in the, the rubble and the record of, uh, of what's there in the temple I have found the book of the law and the temple of the, in the temple of the Lord we have no idea exactly what uh, Josiah's high priest found but what we do know is that uh, Josiah was thrilled and from it he, he ascertained that there had been a lot of worship going on in a lot of different directions. He was appalled by what he was watching with Baal worshippers. And he was aware that some of the, all of the shrines to uh, Asherah, the mother of heaven that Israelites were worshipping, was drawing money away from uh, the, the temple. And so we, what we really got here uh, was Josiah kind of going off. And it says, when the king heard these words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. And we have just tended to say what that means is that Josiah then reads the law and there's this great reclamation to bring Israel and restore uh, all of that. This was far more extensive and the purge of Josiah was actually far more damaging than, than we have uh, understood and, and biblical scholars have become very very good at, at now being able to identify this what happened then shortly into his reign after they find the book of the law now begins the purge of Josiah and the rise of the Deuteronomists what does that mean well they wanted to focus strictly on the one God Yahuwah Jehovah and so all other records that might have talked about other gods or other forms of worshiping uh, were destroyed. The small little shrines to Asherah where the, the people would bake cakes and worship the mother in heaven, those were all destroyed. And we found remnants of those Asherah shrines all over the place. Not just among the, the, the Baal worshipers had their form of it. And this wasn't Baal worship. This was devout Israelites worshipping uh, Asherah and baking cakes to her and pouring uh, oil on pillars and those are all destroyed. The Asherah tree that we think was in the, uh, the temple courtyard was also destroyed um, as, as this purge rolled on and then there were some pretty heavy duty changes that went and so the law that whatever it was that they had the law would be the only source of divine guidance available the heavens are now closed it's sola scriptura in the way that 
uh, creedal Christianity looks at it now. This would be sola um, law, um, sola Torah, as we're going to put this thing together. And so that would mean that anyone having visions, you know, think Jeremiah, think Lehi, uh, anybody that might be saying, I have seen a vision, well, that that's going to brand you immediately as a false prophet because you are going against the Josian reforms and against his his scribes, the Deuteronomists, that are going to double down on the law and get rid of anything else that might threaten the worship of the one God, Jehovah. And, and that will send the whole thing hurtling in a far different direction because this one God is a very jealous God. He is angry about any other gods that might be out there. Remember the Ten Commandments? Um, any other god, if you worship false gods before me, the death penalty might be applied here. So we're going to go after that. We're, gonna, we're looking to kill out idol worshipers. Now, this is all happening as it's winding down. J Josiah's reign uh, is coming just within less than two decades from the Babylonian conquest when Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and Lehi and his family take their tents and flee into the wilderness. This is all happening. This is contemporary. And the Deuteronomic uh, purge is in, is in full bloom. So in the midst of all of this then, we get the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. And that's going to happen in 586. And the prince, first of all, the, the first wave, the princes and the royalty and the highborn people are hauled off to Babylon. And then when the major uh, destruction happens, then everybody else is hauled off. They're going to leave behind a few farmers that can raise crops and so they can provide tributes back to, to Babylon. But by and large, Israel as a people cease really kind of to exist. Um, you might almost think of, on some levels, it would almost be like what Hitler was trying to do in Europe uh, with the Jews that were there. Erase their memory, erase them as a people, and, and scatter them completely. Now, the result of that, though, is that for those, those scribes who are now sitting on the banks of the river looking at Babylon, the Lion's Gate over there, they can see that, and they write uh, in Ezekiel, uh, we still weep for Zion. Uh, it's gone. Our, our, the city's gone, the temple's gone. And they begin a process of trying to, to record for their posterity the culture, the law, their history. They have no idea that they will be back within 70 years. At this point, it might be that we might never go back. And we've got to record something for our children to say who we are in the, in the midst of a strange land. And so what's going to happen so that in exile, these Israelite scribes will begin to write and compile and put together in one place 
something that hasn't happened at this stage, and that is they're going to take whatever they've got and they begin to write Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. I mean, the, the whole Torah is actually being written here from whatever oral traditions and records uh, th- they have. But at the backdrop is, is the Josian Purge and this, and this vengeance-focused God on destroying and putting down any other gods that might cloud what they're, what they're trying to do. Okay? So the Bible is actually going to be written, the, the Hebrew Bible is actually going to be written there. So when they come back after 70 years and Cyrus is going to free them and send whoever wants to go home can go home, a lot stay, and they will write another book called the Babylonian Talmud uh, that has been very instrumental in reconstructing what happened here because that's written and stays in Babylon from the Jews that decided not to go back. Those that did go back under Ezra uh, and those to rebuild the temple and to try and deal with the Samaritans that were trying to move in. They do have some form of writings now that they didn't have before the exile. But again, this God is a much more angry, vengeful, army-filled, blood-letting, angry God in the light of what everything that they've lost and the military presence that they have found uh, in in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. So so the next step on that then is going to easily be then that the Hebrew Bible then in its in its Hebrew form, because there were so many Jews that some went to Babylon, but there were a lot of others that escaped to Egypt, and they formed this massive uh, this massive Jewish uh, dysphoria in. Egypt at Alexandria. And you've heard about the, the libraries of Alexandria. Well, that's where they are. They're, they're creating this world, and there are a lot of Jews in Alexandria. And there, there are, at this moment, there will be more Jews in Alexandria than there are in Israel. Major enclave uh, for them. And, and because now these scribes have come back from Babylon, and they have a form of the Hebrew Bible. The Jews in exile in Egypt are going to say, wow, we'd really like that. But you know what? While we're in Alexandria, uh, Greek, the Greeks own the Mediterranean. And we, our kids are all learning Greek. And we speak Hebrew, but we're all learning Greek. So what they're going to do is, is what most people do in a religious community. Let's go ahead and um, and translate that Greek that that Hebrew Bible into Greek, and they will do that. Tradition says there were seventy or seventy-two of them, uh, and they're going to create from that Hebrew Bible the Septuagint, uh, that will then become uh, the standard, and it is the Septuagint that will actually be the Bible of Jesus along with the Hebrew scriptures and certainly what Paul's going to be preaching from uh, all over the Greek Isles because they're going to be drawing from that Septuagint. But again, there's a translation process. 
into a Greek people that of themselves have of their conquering warlike people. And if you're going to have to choose a Hebrew word for this or that that's going to describe a God and you have as your history uh, uh, all of these uh, warlike mythological gods, guess what? The God that's going to come from the Hebrew Bible into the Septuagint is going to be a little bit more on blood and a little bit more bent, bent on vengeance and we keep step by step by step by step moving forward uh, into this into this range of uh, a God that has become uh, farther and farther away from the from the God that sat with Enoch watching the flood and weeping, who is a heavenly parent to Adam and Eve, and is pained when his children uh, do wrong. That's a lot. That that gap has has widened with each successive translation and each successive set of hands uh, working with uh, the Old Testament text. Okay, so so where does that take us then? Well, if we're going to again take a look at uh, who, who writing in the Bible, um, that will ultimately then get us to Jerome. You say, well, where does Jerome come into this? Okay, well, in, in uh, jumping ahead, uh, what we're going to actually have is that, uh, and this is kind of setting us up a little bit for uh, next week. In 383, uh, the scholar Jerome is going to be asked to translate uh, the, the, the Septuagint and the writings of Jesus and Paul in the Greek and translate them again. This time it's going to go into the language that is taking over the, those Greek areas into Latin. So now he's going to frame even the things that we were finding in, in, uh, in Hebrew and into the Greek and he's going to put it into what was called the Vulgate. And it was commissioned by the church. And it's going to have its own set of biases that we will talk a lot more about next week. Um, but it had a real bias towards uh, the institutional church and the role that priests played in things like repentance and penance. Um, and, and kind of doubled down on punishment and retribution and vengeance in return for sins because sins then under the Vulgate really became focused more on crimes against God and an angry God pushing back and that will be our a lot of our conversation uh, about next week. Now keep in mind though that it is this fervor that just uh, about a thousand years later it'll be the Vulgate that will be in the hands of the Crusaders who will then reclaim uh, as, they're, as they're pouring out of uh, Rhodes and having stood in Rhodes where those Crusaders started from you can see the, the zeal that they had uh, but it's a zeal based on we're going to take the cross we're going to put it on our shields 
and we will be the terrible swift sword of this God of vengeance because he wants all infidels and, and uh, blasphemers put down and they will talk about wading in blood uh, in Jerusalem uh, under the banner of the cross. Now, so let's stop and just ask ourselves. If you have been a parent, how would I bring up how would I bring about change in a wayward child? What would be the best way to take a child that is struggling and help change them permanently and grow them? How much punishment and vengeance would you use? If you're one of those that has tried to, to not use corporal punishment or spanking or, or and you understand how damaging physical violence against a child even in terms of punishment can be then we should be kind of horrified by the idea that God would love his children enough to slaughter whole tribes of Israelites and love them enough to slaughter somebody who happened to be picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And it ought to offend our sensibilities a bit. And it does. I think there's always a bit of a catch when we see, when we stand there with Nephi trying to decide how to get the brass plates and he's coming to believe that it's his job to take a sword and cut off the head of a defenseless man, drunken man. And you can see how much he's pushing back against that. It offends his sensibilities. And this is somebody that was raised under the law of Moses. As it was understood under the, from the Deuteronomus. So, how do we explain all of this vengeance, especially in the Old Testament? Well, let me wrap up with, uh, with a couple of quotes. And again, set us up for uh, uh, next week. I love this quote from Brigham Young. And his, here's what he said. I have heard that some make the broad assertion that every word within the lids of the Bible was the word of God. I have said to them, you have never read the Bible, have you? Probably thinking about these kind of things. Oh yes, and I believe every word in it is the word of God. And then listen to, his, listen to Brigham Young's response. Well, I believe that the Bible contains the word of God and the words of good men and the words of bad men. And the word of word of good angels, and the word of bad angels, and the words of the devil. It's quite it's quite a comment. 
I believe that the Bible contains the word of God, the words of good man, the words of bad man, the words of good angels, the word of bad angels, and the words of the devil. All mixed in there together. And I think it, the, the question for us is, uh, how do we explain that? Well, let me, as, as we get to this, and as we kind of wind down, let me suggest that that we read the Bible the same way that we that we live our lives, and we come in contact with things that are that are supposed to be uh, put forward as truth and, and knowledge. We listen with our godly sense of hearing. If what we read in the Scriptures fills us and fills our hearts and lifts our minds and our souls you can be sure that you're reading the words of God. If at times, especially in little parts of the Old Testament, we read something that does not uplift us and seems to constrict our heart just a little, I think we can be pretty sure that there's something about that that isn't maybe exactly as God intended. We just don't know what it is and we may never. But learning to listen to the spirit within us that will bear witness of truth. And I think most of the time, uh, for me, when I'm reading uh, tales of slaughter and pain, and, and my, I feel my heart constrict, I have to wonder if I'm getting some kind of scribal interference or not. Won't know, will we? Uh, but I know that part, oftentimes what I'm reading does not square with the Jesus of Nazareth and who I know him to be. And certainly I see as the, the, the uh, acts of a heavenly father doesn't feel very parental. And we have to wonder that there's something here that is maybe not as he would have intended. And at this stage, we have no way of knowing other than just listening with our heart. Brothers and sisters, if, we could, if I could put in a nutshell the plan put forth by a loving father and mother in a divine premortal existence, if I could overly simplify it, that plan, it would sound something like this. If you walk towards me, I will transform you and fill you with my joy. If you choose to walk away from me, your distance diminishes my help, but not my love. I think all of what we read in the Old Testament of people that struggle and the history of Israel is God loving a people that weren't obeying and over and over and over and over this God said to them just turn around through Isaiah he says how can a mother forget her suckling child this is not a God bent on punishment this is not a God anxious for vengeance and revenge. 
This is a God looking to love his children back, even when they walk away. I bear you my testimony this is a lo- that we worship a God of love and not of vengeance. And I pray that as we go through this week and then into our class next week where we get to discover the joy and, and kind of weed out the God of vengeance that mi- made its way into New Testament, that we can be grateful for a God that loves us in spite of our warts and is not anxious to punish, but anxious to heal us. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.